in today's episode of the Amman Wire podcast. In the pre-modern Islamic period, Muslim scholars had no problem having these, having these discussions about, you know, has, has the context changed such that these rules should be changed? I think the difference is today, people are so confident in their cultural values and have such little confidence and regard for their religious traditions that they're really willing to completely mangle those religious traditions or just dispense, just throw them out completely. So there's a lot more resistance to kind of nego- to, to kind of adapting to cultural norms because those cultural norms are making demands on the religious tradition that would never have previously have been made. Assalamu alaikum and welcome to the Iman Wire podcast. I'm Mohammed Salim from uh, Iman Wire. I'm joined by my co-host Sammy Kadavik. And uh, with us today is a special guest, Dr. Jonathan Brown, professor at Georgetown University and author of the acclaimed book, The Squinting Muhammad. I'd like to welcome uh, Dr. Brown and, and Sammy here. Assalamu alaikum. We're going to discuss certain issues and how Muslims approach texts, um, how they approach um, the Quran or the Hadith or statements of previous uh, scholars. I think one of the issues today, Dr. Brown, is that many Muslims find difficulty in reading a text or a statement from a previous scholar of, uh, say, a few centuries ago and have a difficulty reconciling that with their current moral or cultural sensibilities. Um, so I, I'd like to begin with that that issue. Um, certainly, I, I would expect that since Islam is a 1,400-year-old tradition, that this this dilemma can't be a really new uh, phenomenon. Certainly, I'm sure there, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that this has happened in the past, that Muslims have had to deal with issues in how they interpret and apply Quran, Hadith, statements of previous scholars or, or um, positions of previous uh, legal schools. So let's maybe begin there, maybe from a historical perspective uh, of how Muslims have dealt with this in the past. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. I think that we tend to think that, you know, in the 19th, basically beginning the 19th century until today, you know, that the human species has gone through such immense change. Um, And that's true. You know, we have, you know, the rates of, the rate of change, you know, from like the mid 1800s to the mid 20th century, that you go, you know, people, let's say a town in, United States would go through in terms of technology and economy and stuff like that in one year is more than, you know, communities would go through in a century or even more, uh, 100, 200 years earlier. I mean, we, so this, when things change like that, it's, it's very difficult to relate to the past, um, and to expressions in the past and morals expressed by figures in the past. Uh, but, we're not the first people to have gone through change. Uh, it's been dramatic, but actually a, a group of people that went through extremely dramatic change as well were the early Muslim community. In fact, the first generation of Muslims. These, let's remember these people were basically peddler merchants selling things like skin, leather, and like butter and things like that in Mecca. And Or they were Bedouins or they were herdsmen or they were domestic servants. Um, in Western Arabia and Central Arabia. And then within a matter of decades, these same exact people were ruling cities like Damascus and Bukhara and Marv and Fustat in Cairo and Yemen and things. I mean, and Cairo, or what was later to become Cairo, you know, 
sitting by the Nile River in a bunch of in a thousand year old civil two, several thousand year old civilization that's incredibly wealthy. If you're a Bedouin from Western Arabia, is just as different as I think we feel from Western Arabia, uh, and so they went through tremendous change, really tremendous change, and you can see actually um, that they understood that some some of the 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 way that the Quran spoke, or the way that the, the let's say the rulings that the Prophet gave in his Sunnah, Salam. Sometimes they understood that they really had to take into consideration a complete different context. And just, I mean, what I mean is, it's, what's interesting here is, I'm not talking about centuries later after the death of the Prophet. I'm talking within a few decades of the death of the Prophet. Their life had changed so much economically, politically, culturally, that they were living in a different world. Um, and so just an example, this is one hadith I find very interesting. I usually, I oftentimes use it in my lectures. In, it's in Sahih Bukhari and, and uh, Sunan of Abu Dawood and other books that the uh, narrated by Ibn Abbas and I think also by um, Ibn Omar and Abu Huraira that uh, the Prophet said, salam, "La yabi'u uh, hadirun libad," that the the person who lives in the city, settled person, should not sell to a Bedouin. And then, you know, if you come across this today, like, oh, look at this, you know, what is this going to be, elitism, or I'm not sure what this, why is this not allowed? This doesn't seem fair. It seems, you know, really too random, maybe. And uh, you have to look at the explanations that the companions give of what he's talking about. Like, even Abbas explains that, oh, he means you have to let the, the, the Bedouin who comes to the town, you have to let him go into the market, and so he can see the price of things. But you don't just sit at the gate of the city and sell him stuff when he comes into the gate because he doesn't know the price. So you can tell him, you know, he says, I'm coming to buy like an ax or something. And you say, oh, I got an ax. It's mere, you know, only only 50 bucks. And he goes, you know, he says, okay, I'll take it. And well, if he were to go in, he'd see axes are actually $3. A, you can pick between the $3 ax and the $4 ax, but it's really exploitative. Now, what's, what's it, what I find interesting about this hadith is not only what I just said, but that the successor, Mujahid bin Jabr, Mujahid bin Jabir, who's one of the students of Ibn Abbas in Mecca. He's a successor. He dies around 105 Hijri. So about like 720 of the Common Era. So within 100 years of the Hijra. But he's living you know, in that century after the Hijra. And he says about this Hadith, he says, this ruling was suitable for the time of the Prophet is not suitable anymore. Now, we could just look at that one Hadith. We could take as, let's say, we're Muslim scholars, okay? What could we do with this hadith? We could say, okay, literally it's saying that a Bedouin, a settled person can't settle to a Bedouin, sell something to a Bedouin. Um, in that case, what Mujahid bin Jabir is saying is totally correct. Like, this is no longer appropriate because guess what? A hundred years after that, you're not, you go to a place like Damascus, there's no, you know, where are the Bedouins? I mean, there's Bedouins out in the desert, but I mean, if you're in the, literally Damascus is the, one of the oldest inhabited places in the world the oldest inhabited cities in the world, right? So this is not some place people coming to town from, you know, uh, Bedouins coming to town. This is not going to be applicable. So he's saying in this new world we live in, this is not applicable anymore. Or you could say, okay, let's not look at the sort of surface meaning of the Hadith. Let's look at what's going on behind it. What is it saying? Um, don't, you shouldn't be, people should not take advantage of someone who's unable to access a market and unable to do some, have some kind of awareness of prices. This is exploitative. 
So, you know, I always give the example of a Cairo airport taxi charge. So you land in Cairo the first time and you say, taxi driver, take me downtown. He says, oh, only 200 pounds. And then you go downtown, you pay 200 pounds. You tell your friend how much you pay. He laughs. He says, only 50 pounds. Next time you go. So this is the point. You know, you could actually say this is a good principle that regulators in a market should apply, which is that um, we should give – Put people in situations where they're able to have some understanding of a market before they're approached by a seller, and that that principle you could actually apply, you know, in the United States today. And I think it'd be a very sensible principle. So I think when when people are you know confronted with hadiths, a lot of times what they are shocked by is that kind of initial foreignness, that initial strangeness, and as you said very correctly, that was. Someone even a hundred years after the death of the Prophet might actually also have felt this is a really weird report, but they were able to understand because they were closer to the time of the Prophet. Okay, what was that? What was actually going on behind this? What's the what's the purpose of this hadith? So, would you say that the context in which uh, in the example you gave, the, the context gives an understanding of the meaning of the hadith at the time of the Prophet now, the subsequent generation looking at it were saying the context has changed. Therefore, the text in the first uh, example you gave of sort of saying the hadith is no longer relevant in our time, that since the context has changed, then the ruling has changed? Yeah. I mean, sometimes – so you, there's different kinds of rulings in Islam, right? So there's rulings, for example, the way you pray, the type of things we do in our prayer. This isn't going to change based on context because this is – you know, either called, you know, ta'abudi or tawqifi. These are two words. You know, either it's something involving worship or it's something that's revealed by God with no reason behind it. So, you know, why do we not eat pork? We could come up with a lot of reasons why we don't eat pork, but we don't eat pork because God says don't eat pork. And that's, you know, why do we not drink alcohol? Okay, well, now we have evidence from the Quran and the Sunnah that suggests strongly that this is because of the effect it has on us and our reason and our behavior. And we can then apply that uh, to other things that might have the same effect. So there's different kinds of, of rulings in Islam. So things where there is a, a, a reason behind the law, then um, if that if situations change dramatically and that reason doesn't apply anymore, then there's a good argument for saying that that ruling shouldn't apply. But of course, the the problem is that you know, you don't want this to become just a way out for people just to get out of any law they, you know, they want to. Oh, uh, this doesn't strike me as being helpful. Oh, this isn't like, you know, this isn't the way I see things. Okay, well, uh, just because it's not the way you see things doesn't mean that, you know, we should tailor our religious law to your particular feelings. So I think that uh, the problem, you know, in the pre-modern Islamic period, Muslim scholars had no problem have these, having these discussions about, you know, has – has the context changed such that these rules should be changed? I think the differences today um, are people are so confident in their cultural values and have such little confidence and regard for their religious traditions that they're really willing to completely mangle those religious traditions or just dispense, just throw them out completely. So there's a lot more resistance to kind of nego- to, to kind of adapting to cultural norms. Because uh, those cultural norms are making demands on the religious tradition that would never have previously have been made. Sort of like, uh, I mean, I guess, uh, would an example would be uh, perhaps uh, some of the punishments that are found in the Quran and that, you know, we, people have certain issues with some of the punishments, the hudud punishments, mm-hmm. right? Is the issue really that it's 
because actually, if you look deep into it, uh, you know, most of them is such a burden of proof and how they're applied, and you know, and there used to be you know uh, a lot of leeway given in how they're applied. But it's really the issue that people have. The issue is that the punishment themselves, or the actually the it's just that they don't consider that transgression or that sin really something that's really a sin. And is that really the, that's the perhaps that's really the root cause of their opposition to the whatever text is talking about? Yeah, the, I mean that's a um, yeah, you're right. So the you know if people start to think that um, well, you know, I don't think that let's say sexual conduct should be. Um, should be a, a subject of public disapproval or of public morality, then that's, you know, if, if that's the way people are thinking, then that's a really dramatic departure from um, the way that Muslims thought about this in the past and the way that I think, you know, the Quranic revelation and the Sunnah clearly, uh, clearly indicates. Um, another good example would be, you know, I, and I feel bad talking about this because I'm a guy and I don't wear hijab. Uh, I'm not sure I would have the, I'm pretty confident I wouldn't have the, st the strength to wear hijab um, if I were a woman. So big respect to my wife and all the ladies out there who wear hijab. I can only say that I admire them a tremendous amount. Um, but I mean, if you think about dress, right? So what is dress? I mean, there's no moral, like when we talk about, let's say, punishments for sexual misconduct or something, we could, we could sort of assign these, there's like a moral weight to this act or this, what this means or this punishment, you know, there's all we could, but when you talk about clothing, I mean, this is, what is, what is clothing? Clothing is just, you know, we're this weird species that we can't go outside without putting, you know, some kind of woven together plant matter or petroleum matter or animal matter. We sort of put this stuff on in different ways. We cover up different parts of our body and we go outside or inside, mind you, right? Um, and this doesn't really have a moral element to it, right? So if you, you're wearing a jacket and I'm wearing a jacket and he's wearing a jacket. I mean, and they all have the same general style. Is that, are we going to say like this, this is better than that because of some moral weight it has? No, I mean, this is just entirely conventional. And it, you know, a hundred years from now, we could all look like those weird hunger game people where we have, you know, our hair mussed up into weird mohawks and eyeshadow on and we're wearing, you know, some kind of bizarre, you know, I, I don't know. I just saw a few of these movies. They seem pretty dumb. You guys know what I'm talking about? But not that anything is wrong yes, with that. If yes. people want to dress that <laughs> yeah, way. Yeah, that's future, fine. Right? Obviously, <laughs> I don't uh, judge people. I actually dress like that at home. But the, my, so my, my point is that this is, these things don't have any meaning. They don't have any moral weight. But so when, when someone says, let's say, I want to cover my hair, or a guy, I want to wear like a little kufi hat or a fez. If I want to wear a fez, there's nothing wrong. I mean, there's nothing right or wrong about wearing a fez or about covering your hair. Um, so the pressure people feel is not a moral pressure. It's simply social conformity pressure. And the idea that Muslims would abandon what were always seen as clear norms of propriety in terms of modesty, right? So that women would cover their hair, uh, men would, you know, probably cover their head as well, right? Um, certainly they wouldn't walk around in shorts or something like that. Uh, abandoning rules that are oftentimes actually have rooting in the Quran or the Sunnah of the Prophet because of cultural pressure. This is something that I think is relatively new. That'd be my guess. Uh, relatively new in Islamic history. But you know, like with but with a lot of those issues, for example, like for men covering their head, that tended to be typically the the expectation. You know, a good standing, a mm -hmm. man would would cover their head. But 
that wasn't always the case. For example, like in Andalusia, that was actually sort of, it was actually more in their culture that you didn't cover your head, mm-hmm. right? So one of the, I think, one of the difficulties that people have is that every single issue, there's so many unique contexts to all of those different issues. And we just don't really want to really, uh, uh, really delve down into these contexts because I, it's just sort of like the beginning, how you start with the hadith, right? The rural person, you can't sell uh, to the rural person. I mean, I feel like today if we saw that text, we would just, okay, oh, look at that. And then we actually wouldn't even want to even look into like, well, what did that language mean mm-hmm. back in 1400 years ago? Because obviously how the Prophet said that, it was understood at that time in a certain way. Is it that we just don't feel the urgency today that we really want to try to understand what how people of the past used to understand words even? It's as if we don't want to understand what they were looking at in 640 or whatever year it was. We only want to interpret it according to our own sensibilities of 2017. If I may add to that, and this goes, I guess, to the second mm-hmm. aspect of context, because we usually use context. Uh, it was used in two ways. One, to understand when the original ruling came out, what was going on, what was the context in which I was. The second thing is now looking at us 1,400 years later, approaching a text. We have our own context that we approach that from. What? How do we strike that balance between understanding what it meant at that time, what our current situation, in, uh, you know, informs us of what it may or may not mean in our particular time, uh, you know, without losing that uh, root or you know within the classical tradition. Well, I think. I mean, just to to just touch on uh, Salim's question briefly, which is that. Um, I think the difference between us and, let's say, someone 200, 300 years ago in Cairo or Delhi or Istanbul was, is that uh, they had a real commitment to this tradition. They wouldn't dismiss uh, like a Hadith, let's say, just because you know, they, would tr- they would try and understand it. And they would have mechanisms to try and understand it. Um, today, Muslims are much more likely, not all, not all of them and not all the time, but they are much more likely to just say, I just can't deal with this or this is not true or I just don't like Hadith and I hate Hadith. Yeah, yeah. You know, I hear this all the time. I hate Hadith, right? Um, and this because it's just, it's just I don't have people saying I can't deal with this. This is too, this is too, this is too different a world for me and my values come from my world and not from another one, right? Um so that's a big difference. But then going into the question about uh, context today, this is, I think, one of the things that I am most concerned about is a lot of times when we read a text or when you see, let's say, someone on TV like you know Bill Maher or something respond to a religious idea, um, they have this very, you know, oh, well, this is, you know, we know things are different. We, this is not the way. We know what's right today. Well, what's who's we? I mean, look at this country. Look at our country. I mean, it's a tremendously polarized country. And it's polarized perhaps most on social issues about things like sexuality, about things like marriage, about things like um, gender roles, about things like uh, um, the importance of tradition, the importance of of ethnic identity and things like that and tribal identity. So these things are, you know, the world is not what I like to call, you know, daily show audience. That's not what America is. America is a very divided place culturally. And um, a lot of things that, you know, Muslim, you know, more traditional Muslim would identify with are actually quite acceptable to a conservative Christian in the United States. So exactly, you know, our context is an incredibly, is perhaps more so than at least 
I mean, I'd have to really think historically, but certainly in the looking back, let's say, at educated, literate people for the past 150 years, I think that we're in one of the most polarized societies in polarized times where, you know, educated, literate people in the United States have incredibly different value systems. You know, there are not just between uneducated, illiterate farmers and the, you know, educated urban elites. We're talking about all, everybody who's educated, urban, and wealthy. A lot of people have tremendously different value systems. And I think that that's it, what it concerns me about that is uh, going to a text or let's say a revealed text like the Quran or the Sunnah and saying, I'm going to decide what I'm going to take and not going to take based on my context and my values when my values are actually highly contested. Even in, you know, even five years from now, we might have a completely different understanding of sexuality. We might have a completely different understanding of, of appropriateness, of what science says about X, Y, Z, and, uh, or medicine, for example. One day, oat bran cures cancer. Next day, oat bran causes cancer. One day, don't eat eggs. Next day, eat eggs, right? Um, if you start defining, saying you're going to accept or reject like a revealed claim about revelation based on egg research on egg danger or the health benefits of eggs, what the heck are you going to do to your religion, right? And I think that that's sort of an example of the, 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 the danger we face, which is that we, because, because we have a progressive moral vision, and by progressive, I don't mean kind of um, leftist versus rightist. I mean, everybody in effect in the United States is, is progressive in that they believe that our current value system, whatever it is, is the best. And what that means is everything that came before it is, is, is worse. And that's a really, that means that people can't really deal with the past. They can't really deal with values in the past. They can't really deal with morality in the past. And what it also means is they don't recognize that that means that in one year from now, the value system we have then will be better than the value system we have now. And yet they're asking people to make huge commitments and throw away centuries of, of wisdom based on claims about morality being made right now, when they would acknowledge that a year from now, they would have to make the same demand again. And that's a really, that's a very warped system to be in, context to be in when you're being asked to interpret texts from the past. I don't know if that makes any sense to you guys. You're looking confused or upset. No, it or, makes perfect sense. I mean, I, I think that's like one of the characteristics of modernity and, 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 and when the, the age of modernity coming over, in. It's called overprivileging the present. Yeah. Mm, right. Overprivileging and, the and, present. And putting you as the sole criterion of yeah, what, I mean, you're, what, you're, what is truth, what is not, you know. Yeah, like, you kind become of. Become the measure of all things. You urban American educated uh, upper middle class uh, male are the the criterion of truth in the universe, basically. So now, if, if we are products of our environment and, and young people growing up in this country with this mindset, how do we faithfully uh, maintain or continue in the tradition of our faith uh, while, you know, um, without a total rejection of the society in which we're living in, mm. um, but nonetheless recognizing we are products of that environment. We, we, you know, I mean, we, I think, we, I think uh, there's a couple of things I would say. One is that uh, Muslims and the Sharia have always adapted to 
context. And this is, people always think the Sharia is this, oh, it never changes, oh, it's so, actually, you go look, let's say, rules on contract, on marriage, like what's the, let's say, what's the expectation of a husband and wife that they have towards, what are their duties towards each other? This is all context. This is all based on urf, on custom. So in America, it's completely different than in Morocco or completely different than in Egypt, completely different than in Indonesia 100 years ago, right? It's totally different. That's, that's um, so, you know, when we talk about, you know, marriage problems in the U.S. between amongst Muslims, that's not a problem of Islamic law. It's actually just a problem of, of the fact that, let's say, Salim's parents probably had a very different understanding of marriage than he does. And then I do, right? Because we're just, that's, it's a generation of people coming from overseas and then adapting to a new environment. That's not about Islam or not Islam. It's just about, actually, if Muslims are here 100 years from you now, God willing, we'll be here 100 years from now, we're going to have a very clear understanding about what it means to be married as Muslims in America because we're going to have our own earth, our own custom, which is going to be American custom. Now, uh, that being said, so actually... A lot of, so I'm trying to say is a lot of our trauma that we're going through right now is, is just a matter of adapting to a new context, at least from the immigrant perspective. Second, there's things that are, there's rules that are what's called thawabits that don't change. And then there's the majority of rules which are mutagayarat, which change according to context and time and place and person. So, for example, when, you, when it comes to marriage, right, you're not going to, uh, okay, what is the you know what is a husband expected to do to be a good husband? What is a wife expected to do to be a good wife? Uh, what is a father supposed to do to be a good father? What is it, you know et cetera et cetera? These things are all going to change based on time and place. But for example, there's things that can't change. For example, there's going to have to be a mahar of some sort. There is going to have to be uh, a marriage agreement of some sort. Right? There's going to have to be a uh, some kind of uh, well, not necessarily, but most likely some kind of guardian involved for the, you know, who's from the families who's supervising the, the agreement, right? That's not necessarily the case, but these things are generally are going to be there. So I think that my, my thought as a Muslim is we need to recognize, we need to see very clearly what are those areas of law that change and that are allowed to change, and we need to embrace that, that capacity to change. But when it comes to things that are not, that haven't changed in the past, for example, the, the example is inheritance. So the Quran, you know, we're not going to sit there. We don't need to debate the authenticity, okay? The Quran specifies inheritance shares. Um, so a daughter gets half the inheritance of a son, for example. Now, one could say that, well, this was based on a certain culture at a certain time where, you know, men were providers and women were not and et cetera, et cetera. And now society is not like that, so let's say that this rule no longer applies. That's one possibility. And some kind of reformist Muslim scholars have made this argument. But the problem is here we don't know, again, because of the context we live in, are, are, are we, is, our, is our society now normative, right? So is, is the fact that men and women are both now equally educated, let's say equally able to earn money, um, should we adapt to that or should we see in our revealed text some guidance about supposedly unchanging elements of, 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 of man, role for men and women in society, right? So, I mean, and again, I want to be clear, I'm not advocating anything because you know, Lord knows I would never want to do that. 
But the, the point is some people could say that the, 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 the Quran and Sunnah's advocacy of like a maternal role for, for women, of women focusing more on, uh, on um, let's say, motherhood and things like that as opposed to providing for the family, that this is something that should be heeded as normative. It's not just contingent on – it's not just a random – description of the society at the time. It's actually normative that we should follow. And in that case, um, the response would be, no, let's not change our Quranic law and inheritance because of a modern context change. Let's actually be wary of the changes around us in, an, in, in our society and say, maybe we shouldn't kind of completely de-strip uh, de the genders of their roles and things like that. Just to be clear, I'm not advocating anything. I'm just giving different interpretive options. Following up on the interpretive options, uh, with one of the things you find um, in, in much of the Muslim discourse uh, regarding this interpretive process, which in our tradition, I guess, would come under the uh, notion or the of ijtihad, the doctrine of ijtihad. And so you have on one, I would argue, I guess, one extreme is ijtihad is whatever I feel and think it is. I mean, I, 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 it was what, what, on a particular issue is what I feel and what I think it is on that particular issue and how it suits me. Uh, and there tends to be the other side of the spectrum is she had as a thing of the past and uh, it's done and all things have been resolved and therefore it's a closed chapter. Um, so you, I kind of see that Muslim community seems to always be between these two. Could you maybe like give us some or for our listeners some insight into what is the classical or a classical formulation of Ijtihad? How does that play a role in society? So the classical formulation would be, and this really, you know, I mean, it's it's pretty common sense, but it gets formalized really in the, the 1200s, is that there's lots of different levels of Ijtihad. So Ijtihad is just exerting an effort to understand God's will. Um, so at one end of the extreme, you have someone, let's say, like Abu Hanifa, who looks at the Quran, looks at the Sunnah as he understands it, and then looks at the, the companions of the Prophet and the successors of the Prophet, of them, and comes up with his own methods of putting these sources together, interpreting from them, drawing out rulings from them, and understanding from them. Right? And then, so that's like the, the highest level of Ijtihad, someone who's coming up with their own, literally their own method of understanding the, the revelation of the Quran and the way that we approach it. The farthest away from that is the, you can think about the guy who's like the local mullah of some village who basically just knows one book of Islamic law and some guy comes up to him and says, hey, you know, my neighbor, um, you know, he's letting his water go onto my land and it's ruining my crops, but he says, if he doesn't let it go, it's going to ruin his crops. What do we do? And he says, okay, well, let me check. And then oh, here's the ruling there. So that's the other end. It is not ijtihad really at all. It's just somebody who's slightly more qualified than the average Joe going and looking at a book and giving a ruling. And basically almost like Googling it back yeah, then. Basically, yeah, basically. It's the equivalent of Sheikh Google back then. So now the what happens is between those two poles is where you have Islamic scholarship take place over the centuries. The, um, the first example I gave, that kind of complete independent ijtihad, it's not that it's not allowed anymore because of some rule that was passed or something about us where it's not allowed anymore. It's just that there's just – there's only – to sort of 
stretch or phrase or change a phrase a little bit. There's only so many ways to skin a cat. You know, there's only there's only so many ways to read the Quran, to think about its relationship with the Sunnah, to think about you know how you look at the companion rulings, different ways of legal reasoning. I mean, there's once and and that basically these different methods were kind of all exhausted by the the generation of Abu Hanifa and Imam Shafi'i and Malik and Ibn Hanbal and then let's say a hundred, two hundred years after them. And it's 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 just it's not you know there's nothing wrong with us today. It's just that there's not a lot of new ways to think about this stuff. And actually, I think that's true. Every time some Muslim scholar comes up and says, "Oh, I've thought of a new way of approaching the Quran," well, usually there's someone in the past who already thought about it, just called it a different something else. Um, uh, now, what you do have is a tremendous diversity of opinion that forms around questions of law and theology through the Islamic the period of Islamic civilization in the 800s, 1100s, 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 up until the 19th century. And uh, so you have a vast kind of, I like to call it Mr. Potato Head bucket of parts. You have a vast collection of Muslim scholars trying to understand what God wants in any one particular situation or what he wants us to believe or do. And so today, Ijtihad is two things, right? One is, Basically saying, look, we have a we're we're Muslims living in America, okay, and I you know I want to buy a house, and but I can't we can't do interest. So what do I do? Um, well, I can go to this Mr. Potato Head bucket of parts from a Muslim scholar and try and figure out what are the options that the Islamic tradition allows, and how what how do these options best promote the best interests of Muslims in America? And this could be we could disagree about what those best interests are. We can disagree about the best way to promote them. And so you're going to have disagreement and difference of opinion, as you always did in the past as well. The second th- type of issue had you have today is the type that there's always been, which is something new happens and you need a question and you need to answer a question. So, you know, in the 1500s, when some, some guy comes and says, hey, I found this weird thing. It's called tobacco. You smoke it and you look really cool and stuff like that. And uh, am I allowed to do this? That's a new question. You know, where someone comes and says, hey, I just saw this new thing called a rifle and it, it's really good for shooting stuff and um, probably killing people and birds and things like that. Am I allowed to use this? Same thing, iPhone, whatever, uh, praying on an airplane, you know, et cetera, et cetera. These are all new questions. And they will, as long as there's new questions, they will be the obligation of Muslim scholars to engage in ishtihad to answer those questions. Going back to, we're talking about the, uh, the scholarship, right? I mean, like... I, Maybe we could bring it back to the layperson of, of today. People of today, we just feel so, basically we're driven by our ego, essentially, uh, that we feel that our sensibilities and, and uh, our own uh, norms as our society defines those norms for us are the best. And our perception that the scholars of Islam or even other religious traditions are mired in this uh, era of the past, and henceforth we just sort of automatically dismiss them. Obviously, there's some issue in terms of how scholars, in terms of how they practice their scholarship, as you're saying, you know, whether they're really versed in in the intricacies of, say, ijtihad and how to actually do that correctly. But I want to turn it back in, and and for the for the layperson of today, what advice for a layperson uh, today who is grappling with these these issues? They don't necessarily think that 
uh, they're not going to say like, oh, uh, this hadith says that. I'm going to, I don't believe in hadith. No, certainly not. But they're just, these are genuine Muslims who are uh, doing their best to be, to adhere to the tradition of Islam and, and follow the Quran, follow the, the Sunnah of the Prophet. But they still have these, what a friend of mine calls these, um, these textual or intellectual demons, if they will, that they find in the tradition of Islam, whatever it may be. What is the advice that you would give, first, as a, as a Muslim, and second, as an academic professor? I mean, I, w- I would say my advice as both a Muslim and a professor is, you know, don't, Al-Ghazali has a great line in one of his books, لَا تَجْعَلَ أَقْصَ الْكَمَالَ عَنْدِكَ You know, don't, don't think that you, that perfection, utmost perfection is yours, you know, that you sort of are the possessor of this. Uh, and that's actually a favor to yourself because it, it takes a lot of pressure off. You know, don't, don't, pr- Step back from the present day. Don't keep. Don't overprivilege the present. Don't overprivilege your world and your view. You know, you're just one person in one generation. Uh, you know, on this little planet, right? Um, and you under we understand very little of the world around us. We understand very little of our own past. We understand very little of what's going on in our own country. You know, and uh, thinking that somehow the entirety of human history and the journey that Muslims have gone through trying to solve the problems of what God, you know, the question, what does God want from us? What, what should we do? What should we believe? What can we hope, right? That, that somehow we're going to look back into that experience and everything is just going to make total sense to us. That's, I mean, that's basically idiotic to think that, right? I mean, uh, and it doesn't, you know, it, this is a, a process and you, to being open to open being open to the process means recognizing that you are a slave of God and you're looking for the best way to please God. And you're going to do so sincerely and that this is what Muslims have always done and that they've they use the best tools at their disposal and sometimes they got the wrong answer sometimes they, sometimes they got the right answer. They almost always came to lots of different answers. And so don't, you know, not arriving at certainty, not arriving at total comfort with everything in your tradition is is not a failure. This is just the exact same experience Muslims have had through the centuries. The only difference is um, today we labor with this huge inferiority, inferiority complex where we feel like um, this, this sort of regnant society around us has it right and we have it wrong, but somehow we're committed to that wrongness. And that's just not true. I, I would just, I would, I would really ask someone to go outside. Just go outside, you know, any, any day of, or whatever, any night, and just walk around the city or town you live in and tell me if, if everyone around you has it figured out and, uh, and you don't, you know? Uh, so, these are, in a way, we, we, we labor under this burden that we allow ourselves to have that we don't have to have. I'd like to thank Dr. Brown for uh, coming on the show. Please remember to visit our uh, website, imanware.com, for latest podcast episodes and articles. Subscribe to the podcast, leave a review on iTunes. And uh, we hope to see you and again. And read my Emanwire blogs. Oh, yes, that's right. You know, Dr. Brown, in They're addition really to They're really good, his... I have to say. They always have good jokes in them and... <laughs> That, yes, uh, yes. Uh, Dr. Brown's uh, very exquisite humor is on display in 
uh, his writings on Iman Wire in addition to his uh, very high scholarly work as well. Um, you can also find Dr. Brown. Dr. Brown, where else can uh, people find you and your work? Um, Yakin Institute also. Uh, yeah, and publishing articles for them. And you can come to my office. Okay. Sometimes I'm there. Okay, there you go. So <laughs> go find go find Jonathan Brown. Go go to his office if you're trying to reach him. Just go to his office. Okay. All right. So again, thank you everybody for listening. I hope to see you again. And assalamualaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh.